to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. You know that we have been in a verse-by-verse study of Paul's letter to the Colossians, and we find ourselves amidst that great study once again this morning. And I want you to know what a joy it is for me in my own heart to be tasked with the responsibility to exposit the truth of God's Word week in and week out. It's a joy, it's a privilege, it's an honor. And I never tire of studying God's Word and giving its truth to you so that we might be sanctified. That is no different where we find ourselves this morning in the letter of Paul to the Colossians, that is, Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. A portion of Scripture that I've entitled, Reconciled to God. Reconciled to God. The most important question that a person could ever ask is this. How can a man be right with God? What are the requirements for a man to be in right standing with Almighty God? What will be the only acceptable answer to God when we all one day stand before Him to give an account? Well, that is precisely Paul's introduction in this theme of reconciliation as contained in verses 20 to 23. He will answer that very question, the question of all questions. How can a man be made right with God? Notice how he answers that very question. You follow along as I read Colossians 1, 20 to 23. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister." If there is ever going to be a time to rightly understand one's relationship to God and our need to be acceptable to Him and accepted by Him, this passage and that time is here. And in order to understand this tremendous portion of Scripture, I want us to understand it in its depth, and so I've outlined it in this way. I want to present to you this morning what I believe to be, from this portion of Scripture, five key features that Paul outlines for us in the matter of being reconciled to God. Five key features, five critical components to the matter of reconciliation. 
who they are. One is the scope of that reconciliation. The scope. Secondly, the second key feature is the means of that reconciliation. The means. Thirdly, the need. The need. The need for reconciliation. Fourth, the goal. What is the goal of reconciliation according to Paul in this text? And finally, this morning we'll talk about the security of reconciliation. The security. The scope, the means, the need, the goal, and ultimately the security of our reconciliation in Christ. And I trust that after this morning hour, you will understand in a fresh and a new way what it means to be reconciled to God, and if you are indeed presently reconciled to glory in that reconciliation. Let's talk first of all about the scope, the scope of that reconciliation. On a couple of these outline points, I'm going to jump around a bit in order for us to understand the full breadth of some of these points, and I'll do so with the scope, for that is contained for us in the first part of verse 20, the latter part of verse 20, and the latter part of verse 23. I'll put it together like this. Verse 20. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. And then the latter part of verse 20. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And then the latter part of verse 23. Paul speaks of that scope of reconciliation as the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, was made a minister. So we see in those three specific phrases the very scope of the reconciliation of God himself. Now, in order for us to understand the right and vast scope of the reconciliation of God himself, I think it would be well for us to understand what reconciliation itself really means. For I believe if we understand what reconciliation means, then we're going to be able to appreciate the very scope of it. Let me first of all tell you about the reason for reconciliation in the first place. And to do that, I want to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. This is going to share with us the, the very reason why reconciliation is necessary. I mean, it's one thing for us to talk about reconciliation. It may be even another for us to define, and we will do so, what the term reconciliation itself means, but I believe it's quite another for us to discuss and to define the very reason for reconciliation in the first place. And I think there's no better place for us to start than in Genesis chapter 3. If you'll look with me in Genesis 3, we'll begin in verse 8. You know, Adam and Eve were perfectly formed by God in the garden and given tasks, dominion over the creatures, uh, to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. 
And yet, obviously, because of the temptation of Satan through the serpent, Adam and Eve listened more to Satan than they did to God. And this is what happened. Verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Obviously, they had already sinned, and now they were experiencing the guilt of their sin. Verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Obviously, God being omniscient didn't need to know where they were. He knew where they were. He wanted them to explain to him what they were doing. Verse 10, he, that is the man, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, so I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they were commanded not to eat? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And notice the first blame shifting to ever occur in our universe. The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Immediately, Adam was unwilling to acknowledge and confess his own sin, but blamed his wife. And what was the woman's response when God began to question her? Verse 13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate, and she shifted blame as well. It was true, of course, that the serpent had tempted her, and she ate, but she also likewise did not acknowledge her own culpability. And God, knowing that the serpent himself was truly the tempter, gives us now the consequences of the guilt of our sin. And the first way that he expresses those consequences is in the very animal kingdom itself. Notice this very interesting passage, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, that is the, the physical animal, the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. So cursed are all cattle, and more cursed is the snake and more than every beast of the field. Now all the beasts are involved in the judgment and consequences of sin. On your belly you will go, which may in fact mean that snakes before this time walked uprightly, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And then verse 15 changes and talks more than just about the physical world, the animal world. It says, and I will put enmity between you, now it's talking about Satan himself, and the woman, that's Eve, which is later to be understood as Israel, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. She shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And then the consequences to the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain you will bring forth children, that your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then the consequences to Adam himself, the man. 
then to Adam, which by the way, Adam in the Hebrew text means man, generically, then to man, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you, saying you shall not eat from it, cursed is the ground because of you. Again, a curse, a judgment upon the actual universe itself, upon the ground, upon the earth. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now that, beloved, shows us unmistakably the reason for which reconciliation is demanded. The reason is because the sin of man, including the sin of Satan himself, even before this time, there was the great consequences for which reconciliation is appropriate. And the consequences are that the physical world itself has been cursed, the creation itself has been cursed, and man and woman themselves have been cursed. Now you say, wait a minute, uh, you mean to tell me that I am cursed and that my world is cursed simply and only because of Adam's own sin? How can I be held culpable for that? A lot of people ask that question. Unsaved people often reject that out of hand and say, it cannot be true that I can be held responsible for the sin of another person. And they scoff at the fact that the Bible teaches that sin itself has pervaded our world, including every person and the creation itself, by the sin of one man, Adam. And yet that is the truth of the Word of God. Turn with me to Romans 5 and we'll see that very clearly brought to us by Paul, Romans 5. And this is helping us set a stage for the understanding of reconciliation and its need itself. Romans 5. This very clearly teaches to us that Adam's sin caused the plunging of the entire human race into sin. Romans 5.12. Paul says, therefore, just as, through, <coughs> just as through one man sin entered into the world, that's Adam, and notice this, and death through sin, that's Adam's physical death, he would ultimately die physically, and of course spiritually, and so death spread to all men because all sin. We have in that one verse, Romans 5.12, the key with regard to why we sin. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We are sinners by nature. And we are sinners by choice. And Paul tells us very clearly that truth here. He says in verse 14, Death reigned from Adam until Moses. Look at verse 16. The gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned, that's Adam again, 
For on the one hand, the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation. And he's not talking just about Adam's condemnation. He's talking about condemnation in general, the condemnation that is reached to all men. Verse 17, For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one. That's the death that is reigning through all of us by the act of the one man. Verse 18, So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men. Verse 19, For as through the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners. Verse 21, As sin reigned in death. That tells us very unmistakably that the reason for reconciliation in the first place is because we are all sinners by nature and by choice. And we are hopeless in that. We are hopelessly mired in sin, both because we are sinners and because we ourselves sin. And that conflict between us and God spills over into the very creation itself. Paul tells us that as well in Romans. He tells us that in Romans chapter 8. It would be hideous enough if we realized that we were caught in this sin problem ourselves, but it has also affected the very creation, the very world in which we live. In Romans 8, Notice what it says in verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Listen to this. For the creation was subjected to futility. Verse 21. The creation itself will also be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pain of childbirth together until now. Verse 23, For even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. You see that very clear text that says that not only we as sinners are caught in this sin problem, but also the entire creation itself groans and is waiting for the redemption, the reconciliation of God. This is a problem. This is a, this is a grand problem. This is a universal problem. The reconciliation for which we are desperately in need has extended itself, this, this antagonism, this hostility has extended itself, not just in us, not just through us, not just in the animal kingdom, not just in the physical world, but even in angelic beings, even within the entire universe we call creation itself. Is it any wonder why James says in James 4.4, do you not know that friendship with the world, the evil system, the cosmos, 
Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. That's a very bleak picture, isn't it? It's very bleak. It's certainly not something that our age would like to hear about. It may not even be something that our church would want to hear about, but it's nonetheless true. The entire created order has been catapulted into chaos because of sin. That produces for us the very reason why reconciliation is most necessary. And God does not leave us. Thanks be to God that he, although he would be perfectly righteous in doing so, in plunging the entire world into this consequential sin eternally, chooses not to respond in that way. Does he simply leave us in a God-rejecting futility? No. He takes the initiative so that we might be reconciled. And it is all bound up in the understanding of what reconciliation itself means. You know what reconciliation itself means, the word? It means taking two parties who were hostile to each other and making them friends. Taking two parties who are hostile to each other mutually and making them friends. I wish we had time to develop all of the salient texts which speak to us of God's reconciliation. It's overwhelming. But enough to say this, the word reconciliation itself, as used here in Colossians 1, and by the way, only used one other place, this unique construction of this word, by Paul, one other place in the parallel epistle of Ephesians. So it may even be that Paul coined this term himself to refer to this reconciliation. It's the word katalasso. And what Paul does is he attaches another little prefix on top of kata, apa, apa kata lasso. And it is a marvelous word. And what it means is, apa means back or complete, kata means through, and alasso means same. What God has done in reconciling the world to himself is that he has thoroughly changed us back from being once enemies of himself to being his friends. It's a tremendous word. It has tremendous implications theologically. And we must understand it. Because if we don't understand it, we will not appreciate the great reconciliation that God has given to us. God, by his own initiative, has effected a complete and thorough change in our relationship. To once be enemies of God, now to be friends. To be brought back in complete harmony with God. I didn't share with you earlier, and you can do so now. In Romans 5, I gave you the bad news. The bad news was that through Adam, we are transgressors. Death is reigning through Adam. We have no hope. But earlier in Romans 5, just a couple of verses earlier, it says in Romans 5, 10 and 11, For if, while we were enemies, you see that reconciliation terminology there? 
while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. You see the hostility there? We were enemies of God, but God brought us to a place, instead of being an enemy of Him, we're now reconciled. And we are reconciled through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only this, but we also exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. You know what it means to exult? It means to praise God. It means to shout in exultation. It means to glory in the fact that once we were enemies of God, and now He is calling us His friend. What a, what a tremendous, tremendous reality. You are probably much more familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It also speaks of this reconciliation. It says in 2 Corinthians 5.18, Now all these things are from God. In other words, they didn't originate with us. He initiated these things. Who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. In other words, Paul is saying, no longer be the enemy of God, but be reconciled to him. We beg you, he says. We're begging you to instead of being an enemy of God, to be a friend of God. To have full and complete harmony with God. Now with that understanding, what does Paul say in Colossians chapter 1, verse 20, is the scope of such a reconciliation? What is the scope? Well, he says, verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. All things? All things, Paul, through him, he says, whether things on earth or things in heaven, which was proclaimed, verse 23, in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a servant. What does Paul mean when he says here that the scope of reconciliation is all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and that this reconciliation has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like universalism. That sounds like Paul is a thousand universal reconciliation, that ultimately everything will be the friend of God. Is that what he's saying? Well, we know that that is not true, because other passages clearly tell us that there will be people in hell both spiritual beings who are angels and spiritual beings who are human beings, they will be ultimately in hell refusing to submit themselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's why they are in hell. And yet Paul says here that ultimately all things are going to be reconciled to himself, whether things on earth or in heaven. What is he saying? 
Is he advocating universalism here? No. What he's simply saying is what we could label the cosmic work of Christ on the cross. Christ just didn't die on the cross for sinners, for the church, for the elect, but he also died so that God's reconciliation could be vast and complete throughout all the world, even for those, ultimately, who are unwilling to bend the knee in humble, loving, adoring submission to Jesus Christ. What Christ's cross work did was not only save sinners, but it also confirmed his victory over death and the grave, and it also confirmed his lordship over every single person without distinction and over every single entity of creation, whether spiritual beings like angels, whether human beings, whether even the physical dimensions of our earth, everything will ultimately be brought either willingly or unwillingly under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He's saying ultimately everything, whether it is by the bowing of my knee to Jesus Christ by God's design or by those who are unwilling to do so, God is going to reconcile. He's going to make sure everybody sees that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Romans 16.20, this idea is brought forth. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Sounds like a contradiction, doesn't it? The God of peace, the one who imparts peace, what will he do? In his peace, he will also crush Satan under your feet. In other words, Satan, who is unwilling to acknowledge the God of peace, will do so one day. With a clenched fist, with a tight-fisted, clenched teeth response, he will one day acknowledge the lordship of God and the work of Christ on the cross. But he will do so from hell, for that is where he and his angels have their preparation. Yes, it is true that the entire world will ultimately live under the reconciliation of God, but what kind will that be? Philippians 2. Because Christ died on the cross, it says, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, whether people are going to willingly respond to this or not, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Ultimately, beloved, everything will be brought under the subjection of Jesus Christ. And what he will do, according to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 to 28, is he will take that subjection ultimately and give it back to God the Father when his work is done. So that it says in verse 28 of 1 Corinthians 15 that God may be all and in all. Christ will do his work so that he might be all in all, and when he finishes that work and vanquishes all foes, whether they are willing or unwilling, then he will turn around and give it all in subjection back to God the Father so that God may be all and in all. You say, well, you mentioned a moment ago that even the physical kingdom, even animals themselves, will ultimately be subjected. How will that be? How will it be? I can understand how human beings ultimately, whether willingly or unwillingly, will be subjected, subjected to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What about creation? 
What about the animal kingdom? Well, there's a very interesting passage in Isaiah 11. And it speaks of the fact that there will ultimately, even in the animal world, be a reconciliation. Isaiah 11, verse 6. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. How interesting. And also the cow, remember the sin that was engendered, the consequences of sin upon all the cattle? It says, and the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra. Isn't that wild? There'll be a little nursing baby who will be playing around the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see God's cosmic reconciliation? It'll be a cosmic reconciliation not just of human beings, not just of angels, not just of creation itself, but even the physical animal kingdom. What is the scope of God's reconciliation? It is total. It is total. Beloved, you can be very encouraged by that. God will ultimately vanquish all foes, whether willing or unwilling, and the entire universe will be brought in subjection to him so that in the end, reconciliation is announced. Sin affected every area of creation, and the work of God in reconciliation must then extend to every area of that creation. In the language of Paul in Ephesians 1, he says this, when God raised Christ from the dead, Ephesians 1.20, he seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power, you know that, that is angelic leadership, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come, and he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him a head over all things to the church. Everything ultimately is to be brought into subjection to the one who has subjected all things to himself. That's the scope. The scope is total. Now let's talk about the means. If the scope is total, what are the means that God affected that very reconciliation? Notice the latter part of verse 20 and the first part of verse 22. The means of that reconciliation... Having made peace through the blood of his cross. And then verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. The scope of that reconciliation? Total. Vast. Complete. The means? The death of Christ. That's what he's saying. Having made peace through the blood of his cross through the death of Christ. I can't resist telling you about that little phrase, having made peace. The reconciliation is not thought to be only a cosmic miracle, but it is also that men and women, human beings, 
will ultimately have peace with God. What a thought. What a theology. That we, as Christ-rejecting, God-hating, sin-loving people, through the initiating work of God himself, will bring us to a place of peace with him. What a thought. We didn't deserve it. We don't merit it. We didn't do anything to earn it. And God would have given himself every righteous opportunity to smash us like earthenware and give us an eternal hell for which we deserve and are headed and yet takes the initiative to be reconciled with us. We never took the initiative to be reconciled with God. We never stood there thinking to ourselves, how can I, as an enemy of God, be right with him? Jesus told his own very disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go out and bear fruit and bear fruit abundantly. We loved him because he first loved us. It was God in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not us attempting to be right with God. That's got it all backwards. 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. God has provided the intermediator. God has provided the mediator. And you can't miss this terminology. When it says that we have peace with God, he's made peace with us, that is war-like terminology. That's speaking of a warfare. It's not speaking of peace as though it's some ethereal, mystical sensation that I have when I'm pursuing the will of God. That's never what the New Testament says when it talks about peace. When it talks about peace, what it's saying is that we have hostility against God, and He has hostility against us, and He has provided in the cross of Christ the only peace that we desperately need. That's what it's talking about when it says peace. In fact, in Romans 5.1, it probably could be nowhere better and more succinctly stated Romans 5.1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. There was a title of a book written many years ago, and it was a great title. Peace with God. How can you have peace with God? I'll tell you how. Through the blood of his cross. Through the blood of his cross. And through his fleshly body in death. God's initiation. Please don't miss that. Romans 5 8. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even while we were in the state of being sinners condemned, Christ died for us. The godly for the ungodly. The righteous for the unrighteous. What a transaction. You know it is complete idiocy for anyone, even logically, to think through that transaction and not say to themselves, I am a fool if I don't consider that wonderful transaction. 
You mean to tell me that for all of my unrighteousness, I have the very righteousness of Christ? For all of my sin, I have the perfection of Christ? For all of my hell-bent condition, I'm heaven-bound through my relationship to Jesus Christ? Well, that's not anything to think about. I'll take it. The only people who don't choose to take that are the ones who don't want to. They're far too concerned about their sin. Ephesians 2 says it so very clearly. It says about us, We all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, I love that, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace you've been saved. Even while we were in our transgressions, Paul says, because of the great love which God had for us, because of his initiating love, because of his desire to have a relationship with sinners so that his grace could be put on display, he reconciled us to the death of Christ. Titus 3.5 It is not by anything that we have done, no works of any sort, but by his grace and mercy we have been regenerated and renewed by the Holy Spirit. It is God's work. Beloved, don't miss the point. God was under no obligation with guilty sinners at all. No obligation. Yet, he took the first step toward us. He took the first step. We didn't. We were walking away from him. The Bible says that no man seeks after God. No one does good. Every man goes to his own way. The poison of asps is under their lips. No man does what is right. Every man does that which is right in his own eyes. And yet God, but God, in his mercy, pursued us. And pursued us, beloved, to the point of allowing his own son, his only son, to die for us. Listen, if you don't well up in your heart with gratitude, with joy unspeakable at the gift that you've received in the cross of Jesus Christ, I dare say you don't know 2 Corinthians 5.21, he made him, that's Christ, who knew no sin, he was sinless, to be sin, the, the sin bearer, on our behalf. There's not a great, greater phrase in all of the Bible. On our behalf. Who care? On our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That God would take the initiative. You say, well, he should. Because I'm not such a bad guy after all. He ought to get to know me. He ought to know the love that I have for people around me. He ought to know the, the grace and the mercy that I extend to other people. He ought to know that I'm not such a bad person and that, oh yes, I may have fibbed a few times and I may have committed some extracurricular problems, but I've never murdered. I've never robbed a bank. You often hear that, don't you? People weighing their sins. 
saying, well, I'm not such a bad guy when I compare myself with other sinners. That's never a good comparison, is it? Is that true of us? Well, that tells us about the third reconciliation component, and that is the need. The need. Look at verse 21. Is this, the, is this the goodness of man we're talking about? Is this the righteousness that God ought to want to get to know? Paul says, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That doesn't sound like a pretty picture. Three things he says about it. One, formerly alienated. You know what that means? Estranged. Estranged from God. And the way the Greek text reads, in its verbal form, a continuous, settled state of alienation and estrangement from God. It should read this way. We were once continuously and persistently out of harmony with God. So that is a tough, tough position to be in. Strangers from God, deserving of His wrath, sinners by nature and by choice, and we do it in a consistent, persistent way. Secondly, he says we're Hostile in mind. Hostile in mind. It's an active verb. Literally means to have a settled disposition of hostility in my attitude, in my heart, in my mind against God himself. I'm determined and self-sustained in my hostility. Read sometime Romans 1, verses 21 and following, and you will find out what it means to be hostile in your mind against God, and that is a description of every single person before Christ. And then he says, thirdly, we are engaged in evil deeds. In other words, I'm alienated, I'm estranged from God, that brings on to me a hostility in my mind against God, which then brings me to evil deeds because I'm hostile to God and I won't do it his way, I'll do it my own way. Evil behavior, wicked deeds. Folks, this is the bad news. And we must know the bad news before we can ever understand the reconciling good news. We are deserving of God's wrath, and yet he gives us his reconciliation. Lewis Burkhoff said, The reconciled God justifies the sinner who accepts the reconciliation and so operates in his heart by the Holy Spirit that the sinner also lays aside his wicked alienation from God and thus enters into the fruits of the perfect atonement of Christ. And you and I know very well many of the hideous lists that are mentioned in the Bible that said this was true of you. One is 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You say, boy, what a rogue gallery. What a hideous group of people. To which Paul then says in verse 11, such were some of you. Such were some of us. And if we didn't do those things outwardly, we were thinking them inwardly. And if we weren't thinking them inwardly, inwardly we were so righteous in condemning others who were doing them outwardly. As John von Trapp said, if Satan cannot stay us from a good work, then he'll by all means attempt to make us proud of it. Such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. 
As the old Puritans were wont to say, the only thing we bring to salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. Fourthly, the goal. The goal of reconciliation. The scope, total. Total in scope, vast. He will one day bring everything in a reconciled relationship to himself. The, the very need for it is the sin that produces the very means, and that is the death of Christ, and then the goal. And I love this. Boy, it would be one thing if all we had was our sin forgiven. That would be, that would be glorious, wouldn't it? That we knew that we had our sin forgiven, we knew that we were on our way to heaven, we knew that we were declared not guilty, we knew that the sentence against us had been adjudicated by God through Christ, and we were declared not guilty. That would be a wonderful thing. But it doesn't stop there. What is the goal? What is God doing in reconciling us to Christ? He isn't just saving us. Verse 22 says this, latter part, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. What a gift. What a gift. Not just just the forgiveness of my sins, not just the, the transaction of my unrighteousness for Christ's righteousness, but also Christ making me righteous. Christ producing, because of his sanctified righteousness, my own sanctified righteousness. Notice he says three things. If there were three things about us that were very bad, and that is that we were estranged from God, hostile in our mind, and promoting evil deeds and evil behavior, here are the three things that we in Christ are doing that is glorious to God. We're holy, he says, first of all. Holy. We're holy in his sight. Holy before him. Set apart. Consecrated. And Paul begins to use judicial terminology here. He says, we are to be presented. There's going to be a presentation. And the presentation to the judge is going to go like this. That that wicked, guilty, vile sinner is going to be clothed in the very righteousness of Christ. And Christ as the advocate, as the defense attorney, will go against the prosecutor and say, not guilty. And it's not guilty because, Father, I paid for that sin. I paid for that sin by my death on the cross. And God will wonderfully say, forgive him. Declared clean. Righteous. Holy. Romans 14, 10 says, We shall all appear before the judgment seat of God. And when we appear, if you're in Christ, God will welcome you and say, instead of enemy, your friend. Come into my presence because of the righteousness of my son. And not only holy, he says, blameless. Blameless. Oh, what a word. What a word. This word is used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint, the LXX. It is used there, this word blameless, to speak of the spotless lamb who every Jew would take and sacrifice before God. And it's spoken of us in that way. We are blameless, without blemish, without spot. That is who we are. And it is because of Christ. It says in Ephesians 1, 4, that we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And then if that weren't enough, he says beyond reproach. Beyond reproach. That is drawn directly from legal terminology, and it means 
to stand accused, to, to be stood against, to have charges against, and when you put the phrase in front of it, beyond reproach, that means we are irreproachable. We cannot have a charge laid against us. We are blameless. What an exchange. What an exchange. I stand as a condemned sinner before God with no righteousness of my own, and Christ comes to me by his own initiative, and he says, I will give you my righteousness for your unrighteousness, my holiness for your unholiness, and by faith you will ultimately stand before God in his judgment seat as holy, as without blemish, and irreproachable. What do you think? It's not an option. It's not an option. What an exchange. And then finally, the security. The security. Verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Now a lot of people are going to say, but now that sounds like a question mark. In other words, all of these things that you said about me, Lance, are they going to be true? Or one day am I going to find out when I stand before the judgment seat of God that it isn't true because I haven't been firmly established and steadfast and I have been moved away from the hope of the gospel to which I have heard? This is not a question mark, folks. This is Paul saying in a first-class conditional Greek sentence, if you are firmly established in your faith and I assume that you are. That's what he's saying. It could even be translated since. Since you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, and you are not moved away from the hope of the gospel to which you've heard, you're going to stand before him, blameless, without reproach, as a holy being. No, this is not a question mark. This is a great affirmation. This is a great affirmation that God was in Christ reconciling the Colossians to himself. And it says they will be firmly established. That's laying foundation. That's laying brick on mortar in a structure that will not be penetrated. And then he says steadfast. You will have an immovable condition. Not moved away, he says. Never abandoned. Never to be destroyed. And what are the wonderful byproducts? Faith, steadfastness, and hope. Triad of Christian virtues. Faith, steadfastness, and hope. You know what this is called? This one verse is what could be summed up as the great doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. If you have been reconciled to God by the work of Christ, then you are inevitable in your continuing in the faith firmly established and not being moved away from the hope of the gospel. You say, but wait a minute. I know people who... They have read the Bible, they've prayed, they've gone to church, I've seen them witness for years and years and years, and then they just walk away from the church. They just walk away from Christ. They, they don't want to have anything else to do with Christianity. What do we make of those people? First John 2.19. They went out from us because they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out, and that's the word for apostasy, in order that it might be made manifest that they were not really of us. You see, true saints truly persevere. False saints, would-be saints, self-professed saints, self-professing holy ones, beyond reproach, irreproachable, without blemish, or so it seems, 
will not ultimately leave the faith. They will persevere. The exhortation was a true one. They were encouraged to continue in the faith. There was no doubt that the genuine believers would continue and the fact of their continuance evidenced the reality of their commitment. Mark it down. If a person continues in the faith, it gives evidence that they have already been reconciled to God. If you don't continue in the faith, it proves that you've never been reconciled. Beloved, as we close this morning, a story not a lot unlike our reconciliation to God, although with obvious differences. It is said that years ago in a western city, a husband and wife became estranged and chose to separate. They moved away and lived in different parts of the country. And their husband happened to return to the city on a matter of business and went to the cemetery to the grave of their only son. He was standing by the grave in fond reminiscence when he heard a step behind him. Turning, he saw his estranged wife. The initial impulse was for both of them to turn and walk away. But because they had a, they had a common-hearted interest in that grave, and instead of turning away, they clasped each other's hands over the grave of their own son and were reconciled. They were reconciled over a death. And that is us, is it not? We are reconciled to the death of his son. Praise be to God. I hope you're encouraged that God himself has taken the initiative for what we don't deserve and given us what we desperately need to be reconciled to God. Let's pray to My Father, how could we ever thank you and praise you enough for this reconciliation? It is beyond us. It is above us. It is it is too much for us to comprehend because you took the initiative. And that because of your your love for the Son and your love for us, wicked, undeserving, unmerited sinners. And you gave us the very righteousness of Christ in order for us to be reconciled to you. Lord, I pray that each one of these people would well up with gratitude and thankfulness in their hearts for the reconciliation that we've been granted in Christ. Oh, it should spur us to the, to the firm faith, the steadfastness, and the great hope that is laid up for us in eternity. Oh, it should motivate us to work toward being that very one to be presented as holy, blameless, and beyond reproach. It is where our theology hits our practicality. And we must respond because it is the only proper response. To be the deeds that speak of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Oh, I pray for this people that they would respond in this way and give evidence that they indeed are trusting in the righteousness of Christ alone and his reconciliation. We thank you for it in his name. Amen. Amen.